and I'm here to have another conversation, uh, a lens a day conversation, information architecture discussions. Today, I get to talk to the remarkable Jonathan Coleman. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Hey, Dan, how are you going? I'm doing okay. I have uh, really enjoyed having these conversations about IA. They are giving me life. They are giving me energy. Uh, and I'm so excited to hear from you uh, uh, and your range of experience, especially around IA and content strategy. And one of the things that I'm most curious about is how uh, you bring other people along for the ride. How do you help other people entrench themselves in the IA process? So that's what I've been starting these conversations with, asking folks about process and what do you find most difficult to explain or to draw people into as part of that process? Yeah, wow, big question. Um, you know, for me, what I think it comes down to is uh, values. So um, there's a lot of people out there who will have this or that definition for, you know, what we talk about when we talk about IA. And um, I have a terrible memory. So like, I can never really like keep these things memorized or keep them straight. So what I try to do instead is when I'm talking with colleagues or uh, I'm in a new role right now. So when I meet colleagues for the first time, I try to take some time to understand, you know, what's valuable to them. Uh, you know, what, what sort of outcomes are they looking for? What do they consider to be impactful? You know, maybe even to the point of like, hey, you know, in their performance reviews, uh, you know, what are they measured on? Um, because that often signals like, oh, okay, well, they're incentivized to go after this or that thing. And once I am able to sort of uh, uh, interpret or, or uh, internalize that meaning of what they value or what they consider important, my trick, and it's really the only trick I know, Dan, is to say, oh, okay, IA is that thing. IA can help you get to that thing better, faster, more fun, uh, uh, more durably than you could before. And, uh, and maybe that's IA, sometimes I'll say that, or maybe it's content strategy or content design uh, or whatever it is that we're trying to get done. Right. Um, almost always these, these UX practices and disciplines that, that we all care about so much um, can help someone reach their goals uh, in, a, in a better or more sustainable way than they could otherwise. So it's, it's not that great a trick, but it does work. Yeah, I mean, um... I mean, and it's not really stretching the truth at all, right? The, yeah, no, no, no. We talk about how things like content, how things like information architecture touch every aspect of the products and even services that we are uh, designing. Um, do you have an example off the top of your head, like how you helped someone build that bridge from uh, what's important to them to what the content of a product is or what the underlying structure of, of a product is. Yeah, you know, the sort of the most uh, uh, detailed description uh, that I can think of off the top of my head is actually not for, you know, a, a sort of a core IA or core like content strategy, content design thing. Um, uh, it's actually for SEO. So when I was at REI um, and I was transitioning from marketing into UX, um, one of the things I was trying to help the organization do is understand uh, how uh, SEO could help them achieve their business goals while also providing for a better user experience. And that's because I was brought into REI by this brilliant woman named Samantha Starmer, um, who's old school IA community. Um, uh, give it up for Samantha, everyone. And um, she had this radical idea that SEO, which usually seen as like a marketing discipline, 
um, should instead be situated as part of a UX team and in particular an IA team. And so that way the business can still recognize uh, the benefits and realize the benefits of SEO, um, but uh, the UX side of the team helps keep it in check so it doesn't become sort of a series of hacks. Um, and that worked out really well for REI. Uh, based on that, they were able to do things like start um, a content marketing program that wasn't just fluff, it was actually relevant. Um, they were uh, very early to establishing brand voice and brand equity by drawing people uh, into their content with things like expert advice. So uh, again, not just fluff content, but things that actually help people uh, achieve their goals, getting out uh, into the, the outdoors more or um, training in their sport or even just staying dry if it's raining like it is in Ireland today, things like that. Nice. So uh, the trick here is basically like, REI wanted to uh, do things like drive traffic and, and conversion and sell product, things like that. Um, and so the trick is showing how something like SEO or also IA and UX can help them achieve those goals um, and speak directly to those things that the organization values. Nice. Um, so you're talking about sort of at a high level, kind of making this connection so people sort of feel connected to it. I'm curious, what are your favorite uh, tools or techniques um, for uh, doing IA and even maybe uh, helping other people who are not content folks or information architects help them feel like they're part of the process. What are, you know, what are things that you can do that you like to do to kind of help bring people to the table? Yeah, so, uh, you know, content design is such a new industry and, and a new practice, you know, people have been doing graphic design for, you know, over a century, right? So, um, but content design, content strategy, we're really talking about, uh, you know, 10 years, if you go back to the classic Christina Halverson uh, text, um, and if you go back to like enterprise publishing and uh, things like XML, um, uh, you know, longer than that, we, we can probably trace it back to the 90s. Um, but uh, it's still, you know, a pretty immature discipline. So um, it's really important to do what you were just talking about and um, involve people in the process. I like to think of it of, uh, as hugging people in. Um, and I think it's important because, you know, when you get down to it, Dan, language is political. Um, and people who do things like um, uh, write or, or publish uh, a language as part of a product or service or website, people who name things in particular, um, are in fact playing a bit in the political space. Um, because if you have the power to define something, you, you sort of control how other people interpret it. Um, and so it's really important to um, involve people in your process, make that process clear from the outset, um, uh, uh, make sure you take people's input and feedback along the way, um, and build alignment as you go. You can't make everyone happy. I, I would never suggest doing that. Um, but it is important to get people to participate in the process. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think um, that the further along in my career that I get, the more I realize that for me, one of the best definitions of design, uh, which incorporates all of these things that we're talking, all these disciplines that we're talking about, is um, listening to and acknowledging and incorporating as many perspectives as possible, right? And as you say, we can't 
make everyone happy and i'm not mm -hmm. sure that's the objective but making them heard making them at least know that they've been heard i think is kind of a, a crucial uh part of the work uh that we do or let's call it the essence of the work yeah um, absolutely because um, uh people have feelings right yes um, and uh, uh you would not do well to discount those feelings yes yes do that at your peril that is true people have feelings it's simple <laughs> And yet sometimes it's really good to remind ourselves uh, of this thing. Um, so can you tell us what lens you picked and you know, maybe what it is in your own words and what, what about it resonated for you? Yeah, so I have the lens of titles versus labels. And here it says a title is something's name, a label describes what it is. And um, for me, this brings to mind uh, something that everyone hates, and I love talking about things that people hate. Um, so I'm going to jump right in. Uh, naming. So uh, naming is uh, uh, often described by people in software as the hardest thing there is to do. Um, and I think it's because, you know, uh, there's no guarantee of success. You could spend years naming something uh, and uh, do worse than someone who spends seconds doing it. Um, and uh, uh, so it's hard to predict your outcomes. It's hard to uh, uh, determine what your investment should be. Um, uh, and we talked earlier about like how uh, you can't make everyone happy. Names will always, always make people upset. No one ever agrees on a name. Oh my gosh, the worst thing ever. Um, and you have a high chance of failure more than anything else. And there's classic examples of that, right? Like um, people uh, who named the uh, Chevy Nova, and of course in Spanish, uh, Nova means no go, right? Like uh, that's clear failure. Uh, names can always, uh, are always um, easy to subvert as well. So you might take great care to come up with a name that uh, reflects uh, your brand values or, or some other aspect of your product system or, or whatever it is you care about. And uh, someone can easily make it, uh, you know, rhyme with a bad word or something you don't want to associate with your brand. Uh, or uh, I'm sure uh, names are easy to serve in a million other ways. So naming is hard. It's really hard. And it gets to this point about um, titles versus labels. Is there something maybe in your current work or recent work where you can think of, uh, give us a good example of where you had to sort of distinguish um, uh, what something is and use a, a word or a set of words to describe what it is versus the title that you give it, which is to uh, give it a, a name, right? Is that is that distinction something that's come up in recent work for you? Yeah, so I think there's always sort of a group of people in, in every organization um, who like really love naming things like, oh, we want to brand this, this concept, this thing. Um, and we want to do it in a way that like we can protect and defend and is always associated with us and is unique. Um, and you see, like, a, I don't want to pick on a particular audience, but like a, an example that would be like, you'll see founders wanting to name products. Uh, or businesses or companies after themselves. Classic example being something like Hewitt Packard. Um, whereas, you know, other companies will take something um, that's not at all related to what they do, but is a concept they like or that they feel strong affinity for. That classical example there would be something like Apple. Um, or people will make up words that are, you know, you know meaningless until the brand or the company, the service um, provides some context for them. Uh, an example of that would be something like Pixar. Uh, what, what's a Pixar? I don't know, but they make a 
brilliant movies that like make me cry uh, in the first five minutes. I still haven't recovered from Up. So um, uh, yeah, so uh, an example of this is um, something, uh, so I worked at Facebook for a while and something we used to talk about a lot at Facebook um, is uh, just simply calling things what they are. And so uh, in the Facebook product system, things usually have very simple names. They use plain language to describe product concepts. A good example of that would be something like a Facebook page. It's not a website. It's not a homepage. Uh, it's not uh, uh, as well like a, a, a novel. It's not a calendar, although it incorporates you know, bits and pieces of all those concepts. It's just a page. Um, photos on Facebook, they're just photos. Um, chat used to just be chat uh, uh, and so on. So there's a lot of examples of that in their product system. Um, and I think part of Facebook's success because they they need to appeal in order to be successful to you know billions of people around the world is using these really simple, well-known concepts that translate well into you know many universally other locales. Um, uh, to keep their product system simple so people don't have to think there's no cognitive load um, they don't have to uh, understand uh that you know something like you know visions let's say means photos it's just photos right it's a double-edged sword too because when you uh when you name something simply you're sort of co-opting um kind of a a very generalized understanding of what that is but yep. in different ecosystems uh chat or comments can mean different things right and so i think when you one of the interesting things about this lens is acknowledging this distinction that we can call something chat uh or with do it as chat because that's a descriptor of what it is or photos because that's what it is but when we give it a name we are I mean, you said this earlier, there's a political angle to that yeah, as absolutely. well. And that's um, to some extent, a, a common name obscures what might be really going on in, uh, in that. That might be different from uh, Flickr or another photo sharing app or even just a conventional, you know, physical photo album. I guess um, I'm, I'm kind of driving towards like, um, even when someone says we want to use the plainest language for this, what are some of the conversations that you have around that to try and understand what the, the naming implications are? Does that question even make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, and it's because names have such a high risk of failure. They, they add so much complexity, uh, interface bloat, system bloat, uh, and debt, cognitive bloat, all those things. Right. So yeah, so like, um, you know, there's no guarantee you're going to get right or avoid failure um, and names have a high rate of failure, but you can do things to help understand how will this be interpreted, how might it be used. And so what a lot of content strategy or content design teams do is partner with research, so we actually talk to the people who might be using this um, and we ask them for their interpretations of this. Um, how they think about these concepts and as we begin to understand their mental models of a system. Uh, or how things are related, that can often help um, help us brainstorm names or, or check ourselves where maybe we were operating under a set of assumptions um, that just aren't valid for the people we're trying to reach. Um, so that's uh, something uh, content designer, content strategy teams will do. 
a lot of times um, we'll also do things like mock up the name um, in use in our product system. Oh, nice. So yeah. we begin to see like, okay, well, how will this actually work? We put those prototypes in front of people as well. Um, an exercise that uh, content strategy and marketing teams often do for executives is to mock up the name in headlines um, you know, from those people's favorite publications. <laughs> um, so, you know, for a product company that might be something like, oh, how would this look when TechCrunch writes an article about it, let's say? Um, or how might it look if the New York Times does a, a negative story on us? Um, how might they incorporate the name? Um, how might, you know, someone from BuzzFeed who has a talent for puns, you know, sort of do a takedown, uh, let's say, uh, of this name. And these are all just examples, right? right um, but, right. but the point is to like build out our understanding of what does this thing mean? How might it be used? And what do we think about that? Those um, are great writing prompts too. Like I just, <laughs> lo I love, I mean, I, I have gone on the record saying that uh, the most important skill for a user experience designer is uh, writing. Like we can, we can talk about all kinds of other skills to have, but if you can't write, this job is going to be much, much harder uh, for you. Uh, and a lot of us can't write, but we try, right? And I think, <laughs> I think putting the effort in is, is really good. So I love those as uh, writing uh, prompts. Mm -hmm. um, I've been asking folks um, uh, what sort of advice they have for uh, designers newer uh, to our industry on how they might make use uh, of this lens. And you've given us some good examples, the writing prompts, the uh, the research, um, the kind of seeing it in in action, uh, seeing it in, in mock-ups. Are there any other uh, um, I guess what I want to ask is, besides that, there's also the problem of when we when we are talking about a concept or an idea or a piece of or you know a content type, and we give it a name that's sort of temporary, like mm -hmm. just for the purpose of the design process, we are going to refer to these as articles, but we're not going to use the word articles in the product, right? We're just going to call these articles for our own internal use. And at some point, we're going to give it a title. We're going to give it a name that um, uh, is more meaningful in the UI, in the experience itself. When you're working with uh, newer designers, is there, or even people who are not considered designers, is how do you help them with that distinction? What is one way that you can think of that would sort of help people make this distinction between a temporary word that we're using just internally versus the thing that we want to name it for good? Yeah, well, part of the, the idea, this gets back to the political discussion, is that like sometimes those temporary names have a way of taking hold. And so you should even when choosing like that temporary, that first draft of the concept, you know, the first uh, um, set of mock-ups you do or, or system exploration you do, still take care um, because that, that thing that you thought was a one-off placeholder that you didn't really think about um, has a way of becoming not just like a, a commonly used term within your organization, but, you know, as engineers begin to actually build out the foundations of the thing, um, you know, in the database, they'll probably end up using that temporary term. And maybe that's not a big deal, except um, that uh, it creates a lot of debt going into the future. As new engineers come on board, 
uh, and they see this repository with all these instances of that temporary name, but the public name of the thing is something totally different, uh, that's going to affect their ramp up time and their productivity, mistakes are going to be made along the way and so on. So for example, something we tried to do uh, at Intercom when I was there was uh, as uh, we changed um, a concept, a product concept name, Sorry, I almost tipped over a liter of water onto my keyboard. As we, uh, I'm gonna move this over here. As we tried to, or as we would update uh, a product name for something, we would take the time to actually go through the system um, and update all the instances of that name, even where they're not publicly seen. So in our repository database, um, so that everything would be aligned because we knew it would save us time later. Nice. Uh that's that's all I got, John. That was fantastic. Um, well, let me let me leave you with a, a few key things. Oh um, yes, please. I love so uh, uh, so uh, other things for for new designers or, or people who are trying to name things. Uh, first of all, use fewer names. Um, this helps keep your system simple. It reduces confusion and cognitive load. Um, uh, try to name like things alike. So this improves recognition um, and it suggests connections between different parts of your system um, when you can. And if you if you have like a well built out, you know, product or company voice, um, try to match the names to that so that they don't feel like they conflict. And like you said, you were talking about temporary naming, um, uh, try to name for the long term. So if you actually go public with that name, you should uh, consider that it's probably going to follow you around for a while and your company is going to uh, uh, need to use it for the long term and changing things after they're public is expensive and takes time. And finally, with the Chevy Nova example, uh, name for the world, uh, not just for your, your locale. Um, when my business partner and I, Nathan, Nathan and I first launched Eight Shapes, this was back in 2006. I think we ended up sponsoring uh, what was known at the time as the IA Summit. So we had, mm. we had sponsorship there. And that was the first time I think it, the, the name Eight Shapes appeared in public. Um, but for some reason, it um, caught the imagination of people there. So, or people before then. So I remember having this experience way back in 2007 of walking around the IA Summit saying hi to people and then seeing that I worked for eight shapes and they were like, Oh, you work for eight shapes. Like the name eight shapes mm. was more recognizable mm -hmm. than my name where they had met me before, but there was something very powerful about that name. And I'm very proud of the name. And I'm, I really, it's, it's done us well, but it is, it speaks to uh, what you are saying, which is these things have a way of taking hold, of latching on, of capturing someone's imagination um, in such a way that it will follow you around for years to come. So that's true. Yeah, very true. I, I like the idea of um, uh, applying the idea of debt to this as well. This idea, like we see this in technical debt, but I've been thinking a lot about IA debt or content mm -hmm. debt, right? This idea that if we have something that we're using temporarily or as kind of just a, a placeholder, that that it becomes increasingly expensive for us to fix those things. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're going to name something that's, you know, not just for a day, it's it's kind of forever in some ways. Right. So choose right. choose wisely. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me for this uh, little experiment. This was fantastic. I really appreciated the conversation. Well, cheers, Dan. Thanks for having me.